Good morning. If uh, you are visiting with us today, perhaps you came with the holiday, came with family, I may not be what you had expected. You may have heard about this pastor at South Shore Baptist, great preacher, big guy, likes to work out, full head of hair. I'm not that guy. Although I'm sure he seems similar. No, it's true. The Lord uh, has has blessed some, like Pastor Jeremy with brawn, and others with beauty, and and we all just sort of bear what we have to bear. The other bad news, if I wasn't what you expected, was that the best opportunity for you to sneak out just left. <laughs> so, so here we are. And if you choose to stay, I'm excited. I'm excited for what the Lord has in store for us for the next several weeks. We're going to be looking through Philippians. And when I would uh, share with a few people that we're going to be studying Philippians, I'd get the same response. Uh, their faces would light up. And you know they would call it, oh, the epistle of joy. And it's true, there's something unique about this letter. It's very different from Paul's letter to the Galatians. The tone is so different in Philippians. He is just overcome with affection, and one gets the feeling right off the bat that there is a close, special relationship between the church at Philippi and the Apostle Paul. And so I'm excited about this opportunity to share this epistle with you. Another unique aspect about this letter is that the church at Philippi gets it. I mean, you can tell from the epistle, they get it. Paul doesn't have to spend a lot of time in this epistle laying the foundation of the gospel. He talks about justification, he talks about faith, but he doesn't have to hammer that home because... They get it. He doesn't have to worry about strong disunity like in Corinth, pulling the church to shreds. There isn't a sense that they've rejected his apostleship because they get it. The planning of the gospel is not the issue in this letter. It's the advance of the gospel. It's the spread of the gospel within the believer's life and within the life of the church. And I'm excited about this epistle because it is, in essence, one of discipleship. And over the next few weeks, as we approach this together, I hope, I pray, that it will just settle in our hearts. We will be intentionally committed to walking with the Lord. Now, as I was putting together what I thought made good preaching, in Philippians, I came with 36 sermons. <laughs> now, the elders and their wisdom have limited me to nine. So I thought, that's fine. Three a day. Not a problem. We'll just knock out three every Sunday. Let's roll with this. That is until my wife, Kim, said, Mark, I, I love hearing you preach, but not that much. So I backed that off a bit. And instead, I'm going to focus on what I think is the core of the epistle, which is primarily in the end of chapter one through the end of chapter 2. And today we're going to look at uh, a prayer that Paul has for the church that will serve as a really solid introduction to what we're going to do over the next few weeks. So turn with me, if you would, to Philippians 
chapter 1. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find that on page 1161. If you're not using a pew Bible, I mean, I don't know what page you're at, but my Sunday school teacher when I was in second grade taught me how to always know where Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians were. George eats pork chops. Okay? So those of you who teach Sunday school just realize that if you make some mnemonic device like that, it's going to stick forever. So anyway, so if you're wondering where we're at, we're at the pork of George eats pork chops. Philippians chapter 1. We're going to start with verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on into completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart. For whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. You can just get the sense, right? He's just effusive in his joy and affection for this church. And now verse 9, verse 9 through 11 is what we're going to talk about today. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. To the glory and praise of God. So says the word. So Paul prays continually with joy for this church. And this is his prayer. And this is what we're going to look at today. We're going to talk a little bit about this love that he's describing. And what I think are three results presented in scripture from that love. Now it's interesting that Paul is praying for someone's love in regards to someone's love. And I thought, when do we do that? When do we pray for somebody else's love? I immediately thought of high school. I think I prayed for about a dozen girls' love when I was going through high school. (laughs) I think that same dozen prayed I wouldn't love them. And I think, you know, there are many people in family relationships who for one reason or the other pray that someone important to them might grow to love them. Perhaps it's a, a, a stepchild or an in-law or a foster child or, or someone that is important to them. And many of you, I know, have spent countless hours on your knees praying that someone would love Christ. But that's the interesting thing, isn't it? All three of those examples, whether praying for someone's affection or praying for a family member or praying for someone's salvation... That love takes an object. You know, you love someone. You love something. But here, Paul doesn't give an object. Look again. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more. That your love 
of what? Is it that their love of God? Is it their love of the gospel? Is it their love towards each other? Yes. 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 <coughs> By not giving an object, Paul is praying that the Philippians love comprehensively. He is praying for the totality of their love. You see, love is the most Christ-like of all Christian virtues. Without love, without the love of Christ, all other actions worthless, selfish. It is love that speaks to God. It is love that speaks to His sending of His Son to die on the cross so that we sinners might be saved. It is this comprehensive love that Paul is talking about. That manifests itself in the love of God, in the love of each other, and of course in the love of the gospel. But although he doesn't give us an object, he does give us a manner in regards to this love. That it might abound more and more in knowledge and deep insight. In knowledge and deep insight. Now that should be no surprise to us. We should have expected that after all. That's clearly the message of the world when it comes to love. I mean, the lo- in, in the world, and all the Hallmark cards, and the Colin Firth movies, and all that, I mean, you've got love and knowledge intimately linked. Well, maybe not quite. Okay, maybe not at all. Love in the world is not a matter of knowledge. It's sentimentality. It's a matter of the heart. It ebbs, it flows, it's spontaneous. It's, of course, blind. Now, I don't know if love is blind. I do know men looking at some of your wives, they may be a little bit blind, but it's true. In the world, love is a feeling. Love is gratifying. Love is indulgent. Love is non-discriminate. It's certainly not related to knowledge or deep insight. The message that the world tells you in love is if it feels good, do it and love it for your sake. That is not the comprehensive love Paul is talking about. He's saying that love is characterized by something much deeper, knowledge. Now, it's important to note, when we think of knowledge, we tend to think of data acquisition. We tend to think of information gathering. But Paul, with his Jewish background with the Old Testament, would have looked at such a limiting understanding of knowledge as quite absurd. Knowledge in the Old Testament, knowledge when it is used in relationships, especially with the relationship of God, is not data. It is not acquiring a quantum of information. It is relational. It is existential. It is intimate, it is responsive, and it is over time. To know God is over time in a wonderful relationship with Him, and an intimate walk with Him through faithful obedience. That's the Old Testament background of knowing. It's very honest, and it's very open. It's very sincere. Now, 
Many of you may remember even the old King James Bible, where it would say a certain man knew a certain woman. And we all knew what that meant. For those of you who are familiar, a certain man knew a certain woman, a certain baby was born. Okay, I mean, but and what was happening is the King James was doing a very little translation of the Hebrew there. The word no. Now, as an adolescent, that just gave ample opportunity for wonderful immature jokes about how somebody knew somebody else. I've clearly grown out of those jokes. Okay, good humor never dies, so jokes still work. But the point is, the Hebrew would use this word for no. As in describing this intimate union between a husband and his wife. Because that spoke to the point. But when you know someone in a relationship, it is that intimate, honest, sincere, built over time relationship. And so when Paul speaks of our love growing in knowledge and insight, this is what he is talking about. That our love abounds through our faithful obedience to God, through our walk with God. See, God is certainly limitless, but he also has no bottom. Now, love and knowledge in the world is never put together except maybe one occasion. I did come up with one occasion where love and knowledge in the world was put together. The newlywed game. You remember the newlywed game, don't you? The old, the old newlywed game where you had all these couples... And they would be asked frivolous questions about each other. And they, the one who said the right you know, thing about the spouse got a point, And the couple with the most points was the best couple. They loved each other the most. That's not the knowledge and love we're talking about. Not a scattering of data, but a depth. This is why God is new every day. This is why you can read the same verse for decades. Know it backwards and forwards, and then there will come a moment where it just settles, where it just deepens. And if you're asked to explain the meaning of that verse, you may use the exact same words you used decades previously, but there is a depth of meaning in your soul. This is the love we are talking about, the love abounding in knowledge and insight in walking with the Lord. Now there are three results I believe Paul gives us of such a love. Of such a love that abounds more and more in knowledge and in insight. Look with me. And this is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best. This is the first result, that you may be able to discern what is best. By walking in a love, abounding in knowledge, and abounding in insight, through faithful obedience with the Lord, through prayer with the Lord, through singing to the Lord, through reading scripture with the Lord, through sharing the Lord, through having fellowship in the Lord, this results in being able to discern what is best. Now note, this is not saying you're able to discern simply between what is right and what is wrong, or what is sin and what is not sin. 
No, the verb here that's being used is one that's used in regards to precious metals or livestock of weighing and measuring. It is being able to determine what is best versus what is second best. It is being able to have that subtle, keen insight to know what is the more excellent choice. Now, this comes through walking with the Lord. This speaks to knowing the will of God, this discernment. And I think it's important, very important for us as a church, as we are choosing elders, as we are choosing deacons, as we are choosing leaders, that we are choosing people who have a demonstrable history of loving the Lord and walking with the Lord. Because as we are a growing church, these people are going to be making decisions between options of which either option seems justifiable. But one is the more excellent choice. And this discernment comes from a love that abounds in knowledge and depth of insight. From a walk with God that is relational, responsive, and over time. It also speaks to us personally in knowing the will of God. I know for me it is nigh impossible that if I am not walking with the Lord... If I am not praying, reading scripture regularly, and talking, and having fellowship, and listening to him, if I am not walking with the Lord, it is not impossible for me to know his will. If you want to know where the Lord wants you to walk, you must be walking with him first. Has such a love results in discernment of what is best. There's a second result. The first is discernment of what is best. The second result, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ. You see, the natural result of discerning God's will is doing God's will, is obeying. And Paul I believe is, is, is looking at this love that abounds more and more knowledge and is looking toward that great day, that future day, that day of Christ return. When our Lord comes, that great getting up morning, as the old spirituals used to call it, that on that day, a life that has been obedient, a life that has been characterized by a love that abounds more and more, that on that day, that life will appear as pure and blameless. Now, let's be sure we don't misunderstand what Paul is saying. Paul is not saying that he expects us to be wholly perfect this side of heaven. That is not what he is saying. But I believe he is saying, I believe he is saying quite clearly that when our Lord returns, may that be today. That when our Lord returns, and when we are wholly made new, when we are wholly changed, that our life of walking with the Lord anticipates that climactic moment. That a life full of love that abounds more and more in knowledge and in deep insight, that life is a life that loves the Lord and chooses the Lord. That life is pure. 
pure because it is unmixed in its desires. I believe Paul, when he is looking towards that great day when all things are laid bare and when Christ looks upon the lives and the life and the works and the service of his people that Paul earnestly desires that we will be blameless. In other words, that we will have not caused others to stumble. That other stumbling will not be the result of our doing because we love them. That a love that abounds more and more, a love of Christ, loves other people. And a life lived that way will not cause others to stumble. Rather, a life lived that way will lift people up, will edify brothers and sisters, and will share the gospel. Yes, on that day, on that day of Christ, Paul wants us to have lived a life of obedience which comes through discernment so that we might be good and pleasing to our Lord. I believe that's the second result of such a love. The first, discernment. The second, that on that final day, when our life is laid bare, it will be a life lived for the love of God. Now, this bearing of our life, this showing of our life, what is it that characterizes sincerity or purity? What is it that characterizes blamelessness? Well, it's those very acts of obedience that's part of growing in love and abounding more and more in knowledge. It is that prayer. It is that reading of scripture. It is that sharing of the gospel. It is that tithing. It is that of raising kids to love the Lord, of service to the church, of going to missions. It is of singing praises. It is, as scripture describes it, the fruit of righteousness. That what characterizes our life on the end day when they see if it is pure and if it is blameless, it's those fruit of righteousness. But note, this fruit of righteousness, we don't fill ourselves with it. What does Scripture say? And may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness. See, the good news, friends, the good news is that God wants to be known. God has made himself known. That if you believe in God, if you believe that Jesus Christ has taken our sins, his spirit dwells in you so that you may know God. And you are filled with the fruit that only comes through Christ. That you can obey, that you can pray, that you can praise, that you can read scripture, that you can love God and love one another because He makes it so. He will see this good work to the end. Now that is good news, friends. That is good news. Which brings us to the third point. The third point. First was discernment. Second, was that our change in being is reflected by our change in doing and that our lives reflect who we are in Christ. The third 
fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. To the glory and praise of God. Every time you pray, it is to the glory of God. Every time you sing, it is to the glory of God. Every time you play instruments, it is to the glory of God. Every time you come to church, it is to the glory of God. Every time you share the gospel, it is to the glory of God. Every time you work in the nursery, it is to the glory of God. Every time you do anything for the Lord, it is to the glory of God. Every time you obey, right now, it is to His glory. And on that day, on that great getting up morning, when the whole crop is made known, when the crop of that fruit of righteousness is laid bare, and there are no secrets, and there are no mysteries, and our Lord beholds all that has happened, on that day, we will not say, Look, Lord, what a great servant I've been. No. No, we will say with the hosts of heaven, the God who 